Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. I want to thank all the new subscribers uh, I've gotten recently to the uh, YouTube channel here and new followers on Twitter as well at uh, Adam Rogers NS. So I encourage you uh, to continue sharing these uh, videos and the posts and uh, sharing them with friends and anyone you think might be interested. Uh, and we'll keep I'll keep providing uh, this analysis to the public. So today, uh, day eight of the Mass Casualty Commission proceedings, uh, wasn't looking like it was going to be a huge day, uh, just based on the schedule, but actually turned out to be quite a pivotal day in the Mass Casualty Commission proceedings. Uh, today was just scheduled originally to have a presentation on the overnight hours in DeBert, but uh, two other things happened today. One in the Commission uh, proceedings, which was a decision on witnesses, a decision released by the uh, Commission and delivered by the Commissioners uh, dealing with the witness request we've heard over the past few days. And then before any of that, in Dartmouth Provincial Court this morning was a matter of uh, Lisa Banfield's uh, criminal charges. That was uh, addressed in court. Now I looked at the docket this morning, uh, as I do across the province sometimes, and I saw her name there and next to it was a request for adjournment so I was a little concerned that she was going to request a, a trial adjournment but it was a request the, the request was being made because the Crown was referring her matter to restorative justice which means uh, no trial is required she accepts responsibility for uh, what she was charged with doing which was supplying ammunition uh, to uh, Gabriel Wartman her spouse but the restorative justice process takes it outside of the criminal uh, process and um, uh, the formal criminal uh, court process and what happens is somebody will do something like they'll write an apology letter, they'll take counseling, they'll make a donation to charity, do community service, something along those lines and then they return in a few months time after they've completed the process and uh, the Crown withdraws the charges. So Ms. Banfield's uh, next court date is May 3rd and presumably if she completes whatever she's agreed to do by that time those charges will be withdrawn. Now that's relevant because her lawyer at the uh, in the early um, times within the Commission had indicated publicly that she would cooperate and uh, be interviewed and be a witness uh, if required uh, once these uh, criminal charges were dealt with and she didn't have uh, legal jeopardy. Well she technically still has that until May 3rd, uh, but uh, sounds like she's going to be meeting with the uh, Commission today and hopefully that means uh, some she'll be interviewed and uh, agree to uh, testify at an appropriate time. And I'll come back to that because the decision, like I said, was made on witnesses as well. But uh, in the meantime, uh, the, main, um, the main item on the agenda today had been uh, this pr presentation of the foundational document relating to the overnight hours the killer spent in DeBert. DeBert's not that far from Portapique, uh, where he left, um, escaped uh, from Portapique without being noticed, and there was some video evidence from uh, different businesses, uh, Angelina's Pizzeria, uh, Dave's uh, service station, and the farmhouse bakery in DeBert that showed a uh, police cruiser, which we know now to be the mock police cruiser, driving past uh, starting at about 11.08 uh, p.m. And we know that uh, the killer spent 
just under six hours in Debert, and for a time was parked behind uh, Brian McDonald's uh, welding shop in the uh, Debert business park. And uh, in addition to the video evidence, well, there were some uh, items discovered where he had been parked. Uh, Mr. McDonald had discovered those and contacted the police. But there were other witnesses as well. There were two uh, teenagers, uh, a 13 and a 15-year-old boy that were out listening to music at uh, um, a venue that's out in the business park. They were the only ones there. And they got home somewhere around 12.30, 1 in the morning. And then when they got home, they had seen the police car driving up and down uh, the road a little bit within the park. And then uh, one of the boy's uh, uh, stepfather, who's a former private investigator, after the boys got home, went outside to have a smoke, and he also saw the police cruiser, the mock police cruiser as it was. So uh, that was about 1 o'clock. So we know the killer spent a few hours at least in there. Don't know what he was doing. Uh, may have been sleeping. I mean, he had a long day. He didn't have dinner. Uh, I think that was in evidence as well. Uh, had been drinking uh, alcohol the night before, the evening before. Um, so the next time he was seen was on those videos at 5.42 in the morning, uh, going back through DeBert in the northern direction towards uh, Wentworth. So that was all uh, interesting as well. Not much to be gleaned from what was discovered at the site where he was parked. Uh, his uh, police boots were there, a pair of boots that he owned with the name Wartman on the inside, uh, a gun belt, some uh, ammunition um, a case cartridge, so uh, and a, a Mountain Dew, I guess he's a, a Mountain Dew drinker. So that was observed in Debert, and then the, uh, like I said, the vehicle took off before six in the morning uh, towards Wentworth. So that was uh, that was as much as we learned really about his his time spent there. Certainly, um, the ob you know the relevant thing that comes out of that is, you know, had the police realized that. Wartman had left the Debert area, or sorry, the Portapec area, perhaps an emergency alert would have been issued. If an emergency alert had been properly issued to the people in the area, certainly one of these three witnesses who saw the police vehicle in a really out-of-place spot for it at the time in the business park in Debert would have called the authorities and perhaps that would have been the end of things. So I'm sure the families will be focused on that uh, part of the factual scenario. Now, when I, when I say it was a pivotal day, it wasn't just because of those things. It was really came down to um, the commissioner's decisions on witnesses. And there were 27 witnesses requested. And in their decision, delivered by former Chief Justice McDonald, the commissioners agreed that we will hear from almost every one of those witnesses. So this was, uh, you know, really important, I know, to the families and the public watching to know. Because until this time, there was a real question as to what trauma-informed was going to mean as part of the Commission's mandate. Uh, the, we heard from the, the lawyers from the Police uh, Federation and the federal government saying that no police officer should have to testify because of that mandate. So it really had become a, a malleable term. Now, Chief Justice McDonald ended up agreeing really conceptually with what I had written uh, a few weeks ago about what trauma-informed means from my understanding uh, that it doesn't mean witnesses don't testify. They still have to testify, but, you know, they can take breaks, they can have assistance, they can, you know, be done closed-circuit television, or however makes them most comfortable in order to deliver their testimony. 
So we are going to hear from witnesses. We're going to hear from the frontline police officers that were present. We're going to hear from the uh, various staff sergeants who were involved in supervision. And we're going to hear from uh, Brenda Lucky, uh, Lee Bergerman, Chris Leather, Darren Campbell, uh, the superintendents who were overseeing the RCMP in Nova Scotia at that time, and uh, Miss Lucky, of course, the uh, national uh, commissioner. So that'll be, uh, so we'll, we're going to hear from quite a few witnesses as the uh, commission proceedings unfold. Uh, so it was really interesting. It was really, like I said, the first time that we had a clear indication of how the commissioners were going to approach this. And it re raises a question for me as to why we didn't know this before. And I can only speculate because they haven't said so, but I wonder whether there was some uh, disputes among the commissioners as to what that might mean. Um, but if there was, uh, that dispute is, uh, is over and it's been resolved in favor of hearing witnesses and allowing for cross-examination by the parties. So very encouraging development uh, in the proceedings today. Uh, it'll be you know, good for the process uh, and the legitimacy of whatever emerges in terms of recommendations. So, um, so that was that. That was, like I say, a very important day. Some important decisions made. Now uh, the proceedings are on uh, an extended break. We're not back until March 28th and at that time uh, we'll be hearing from uh, Stuart Basselt, uh, Constable Stuart Basselt, Constable Adam Merchant, and uh, Constable Aaron Patton, the first three officers into the community on the night of uh, April 18th. And so that will be uh, certainly important to watch and uh, we'll have some important questions answered at that time. So uh, I'll be watching for anything that develops in the meantime and uh, you'll uh, no doubt see me, I think, uh, be back with Jordan Bonaparte in the nighttime podcast. I just filmed a little bit with, uh, with Sheldon McLeod here a minute ago, so we'll be seeing that on the Saltwire Network uh, over the next few hours at some point, and I'll share that as well on uh, Twitter and Facebook. So uh, if there's any feedback on any of this, uh, let me know, and uh, don't forget to like and subscribe and share it with a friend as well. So thanks again for watching, thanks for listening, and we'll, uh, we'll see you next time.